Rescue the Fosters is about changing the foster system. We want to ensure every child has a safe environment to grow and become healthy, successful adults. Additionally, when I was in the foster care system, I had to defend for myself. Rescue the Foster is here to empower the youth aging out of the system and offer resources to ensure they are not dependent on the government. What we observed was that children become institutionalized and end up in prison and providing the government with more funds. Rescue the Foster will provide coaching, resume writing, interview skills, professional attire for interviews, budgeting, applying for college, and obtaining housing. We want these youth to live the most free, successful life possible. It is their right and our responsibility to ensure that our future kids and grandchildren can live happy lives. Jeremiah 2911, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Welcome to Red, White, and Boom. I am Gino, your host, and I have Sylvia Beachy, my co-host with me. How are you, Sylvia, on this lovely Saturday afternoon? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fine. Uh, we were talking pre-show about how cold it is here, and I'm sick of it. I'm waiting for spring to, to bust in, so hopefully that comes very, very soon this year. Um, I always forget, what's that old saying they taught you in school? In like a lion, out like a lamb, or out, something like that. That's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, we have another great guest on tonight. Sylvia lined up, Sean McMillan. I'm going to go ahead and put up his website, and we'll read a short bio and introduce him. Sean McMillan is an Orange County, California civil rights attorney specializing in reuniting children with their families. He's won prestigious awards such as the Orange County's Top Gun Trial Attorney, Consumer Attorney's Street Fighter of the Year, and Outstanding Trial Attorney. Sean's also admitted to practice law in Washington State and will soon be practicing in Arizona as well. Sean McMillan, welcome to Rescue the Fosters. How are you, sir? Really good. Good morning or afternoon or yeah, it's yeah, it's, a, it's afternoon here. It's afternoon. <laughs> good afternoon. Thanks for having me. It's uh, not the most beautiful day out here, but it's a good day. Every day is a good day. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be, I'm, you know what? At this age, I wake up and I'm like, oh, today's a really good day. I get out of bed. I, right? I just, I just yeah. had my 53rd birthday, and I'm just like, I, I'm shocked that I'm this old and I actually made it through my, uh, you know, younger ages with what I. And, you know, I used to do a lot of partying when I was a kid, man. So it's yeah. just, no, I, I get it. I, I had survived. A, I, had, I had a life plan set out until uh, I was 45 because I figured I'd be dead by then. <laughs> so now I'm kind of living off plan. It's really weird. Yeah. Pr pretty <laughs> cynical uh, outlook on life at a young age. Yeah, yeah. So, Sean, uh, you've done some great work. Uh, I was reading through some of your things earlier this week and watched a few videos, and uh, Sylvia's been been talking you up like crazy. Um, and anybody in this movement knows who Sean McMillan is, and he's not an egotistical guy. He's not your typical lawyer that, you know, I've got family members and friends that are lawyers, and i got to admit they got some pretty big egos. But what I've seen of you, Sean, is you're pretty level-headed and uh, just, just a regular Joe trying to do something to help people out. And we really, really appreciate that in this movement. Uh, I think we need more guys just like you. Um, yeah, too bad I, we can't clone you. Well, yeah. I, I don't know about that. <laughs> Maybe we can. Maybe we can. <laughs> no, you guys, you guys aren't seeing the whole whole picture. You're just yeah. <laughs> you might not want to clone me if you saw everything. <laughs> well, I think that goes for all of us. Uh, so, Sean, let's let's start with the beginning. Let's. How did you yeah. get involved? Because you didn't originally start out as a civil rights attorney. I think you were went defending corporations or, or some kind of litigation. Well, 
Yeah, I, I actually started out in the computer business before I got into law. And uh, this was back before the dot-com bust, but it was apparent that that business, that industry was changing very quickly and that we were either going to get bought out, absorbed, or you know go belly up. So I did start law school fairly late in life, and I went at night, graduated, and within a year of the time we graduated, the dot-com bust hit, everything fell apart. I just sort of transitioned directly into law. And since my experience was in business, that had been you know, 15 years in the computer and electronics business, I sort of had a built-in customer base already. And that's what I did is I went directly into business litigation and trial work. And I was, I, I did pretty well at it for the first seven years. And just to give you a um, sort of some, some, what's the word? The framing, I guess, not the framing necessarily, context. That's what I was looking for. To give you context, I was a solo practitioner in 2007. And my last collected hourly billings, because I only did hourly work. I didn't do contingency work or, you know, highly risky work. I got paid for my effort. My last fully collected billable year, I got $900,000 in revenue off time. And when you're when you're doing build work, that's real money. It's not money perspective in the future that may come in. It's money you get paid. So that gives you an idea when we get to the rest of what happened to get me where I'm at today. That gives you an idea of what I walked away from to get into this stuff. And um, it was substantial. You know, that was a, that was a really really tough decision to make. But anyway, I, I did this business litigation and trial work. And I started doing trials, jury trials for other small and solo, you know, small firm, solo practitioners. There's a lot of attorneys out there that do not like trial work. And I found early on that I actually enjoyed doing the trial work. So I, I, sub, I would sub out and do work for other attorneys. And I had one attorney, and this is how I got into this civil rights stuff. I had one attorney who I tried a couple cases for in the past, got great results for her. And she came across a lady up in Orange County who um, had her children taken away from her. And the claim was, the allegation was that the social workers lied about her in court and the judge just immediately granted an order to take the kids away. Well, the attorney calls me up and says, hey, I've got this uh, lady coming in. Um, you know, I'm not going to take the case. I think it's a good case, but I'm not going to take it unless you'll try it. I said, well, tell me about it. So she told me the story, this lies in court, and she lost her kid. I said, ah, oh, yeah, that's all bullshit. I'm not, I'm not touching that case. No way. And so I hung it up. It was like, I don't know, maybe a week later, and I don't know how she got my home number. Maybe the, the attorney gave it to her or something. She calls me at home. The, the, the client, the prospective client calls me at home and you know starts talking to me about her case and i told her well you know, i i already told sandra i'm not gonna do the case and um so she said well let me just talk to you she's super nice and i always try to be nice to people even even if i know that it's wasting my time and theirs to continue the conversation i i, I want to be polite i know they're in a tough spot i know they've been through some really heavy stuff and so I don't want to be that guy that's just going to slam the door on their face. So I'll, I'll always listen. 
And we talked for a while, probably half an hour, 40 minutes. And then finally, I just told her, you know, no. And, you know, she was somewhat dejected. She hung up. And I thought that was the end of it. Two or three days later, I'm in the shower, right? It's nighttime. I'm home from work. I'm in the shower. I'm like washing my hair. It's, it's all soaked up. And my wife comes running in with the phone and says, your dad's on. <laughs> this is so funny. Your dad, at least to me. Your dad's on the phone. He says it's an emergency. And I'm thinking like, oh, shit, somebody died. Yeah. So yeah. There's, there's, you know, or hospital or, you know, the worst possible thing, an emergency. So I just rinse off my hair. I didn't even clean up. And I hop out of the shower. I grab the phone. And I was all, what's happening? My dad says, uh, there's this lady. She's going to call you in like five minutes. <laughs> I told her you would take her case. And I, I, I just stopped at all. I don't know if it's appropriate to say this. You can say whatever you want. Free speech platform. <laughs> I just thought, what the fuck? <laughs> I, and I mean, it's funny now looking back, but I was so angry. But my dad just said, no, no. I told her you would take her case. You take her case. And, you know, in our, in our family, there, it, yeah, we have this patriarchal hierarchy for sure. And at that time, when I was 40, I think, and my, my dad you know, I, I grew up at the end of the leather strap, oh, and yeah. we have a good Tough relationship. That, yeah, but, you know, when he tells me to do something, I do it. And he told me to take the case. So grudgingly, even though I, I knew it was a mistake, I knew it was going to be a loser, and I knew that I was going to end up losing money on it. At that point in time, I was charging like five fifty an hour, and this would be $125 an hour with a contingent component. I did not do contingency work. My dad had just sold me into indentured servitude. And so, I, yeah, I was angry about that. But, yeah, she, uh, Deanna called me back. And I obviously, I cleaned up. I finished my shower. Sean, can I interrupt for one second? Because I'm yeah. baffled how she got your dad's number. How did that I'm happen? baffled how she got <laughs> I, I don't get that. <laughs> I don't I don't either. She's very resourceful. She's a very resourceful. I don't even know how she got my home number other than I speculated that she got it from Sandra. But, you know, I I never asked Sandra about it, but I, I assume that's where she got it. I have no idea how she got my dad's number. I certainly did it, didn't give it to her. And Sandra didn't know it. So I've always wondered about that. I just never asked. Her. But uh, anyway, she calls me and we talk about it. And I told her, look, I mean, I'll, I'll do the work. You got a hold of my dad, you know, they kind of backdoored me, but yeah, I'll, I'll do the work. And I, I might've been a little rough with her in that conversation because I, you know, I was a little bit upset, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, I made a commitment to, to do the work. And I told her right up front, I, I don't believe it. This just sounds like a bullshit case, but you know, it's a trial. And at that point I was, I was trying to rack up trials because it's hard. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but in the civil arena, it is really hard for a, an attorney to actually get a lot of trials. If you get two trials a year, you're lucky. Is that because and, they're mostly court appointed? No, no, not in the civil arena. All I do is civil work. I don't okay. do dependency or family or any of that. And hmm. those, those things, you get trials all the time. You know, if you're in juvie or family court, they're not jury trials, but you right. do right. get bench trials. In criminal defense, you're in front of a jury all the time. You get hundreds. Some of these criminal defense attorneys have hundreds of trials racked up with juries, which, you know, that's impressive. That's what everybody wants to do. 
I mean, we're all gunfighters, right? So you, you yeah. want to get notches on your belt. And at that point in my career, I was just looking for more notches. So that was the positive. I thought, okay, well, I've got this, you know, what I thought was a shit case, mm-hmm. but I'm going to get a trial. And that counts, right? That's mm-hmm. point. That counts. So I, you know, there, there was a positive, there was a silver lining. And um, so we started working the case. This was, I signed on to it in May of 2005. By that point, the case was, it was actually filed in 2001. It got rejected on a uh, motion to dismiss, which Deanna appealed and the appellate court reversed the dismissal and sent it back down. She had a really cool judge because she got it back in, I think, 2003. And, you know, normally what a state court judge would do is if you don't have an attorney on board to start your case moving within 90 days, they're just going to dismiss it. And that's the end of that. Her judge, awesome guy, his name was Ronald Bauer. And he, you know, she'd go in like he kept setting hearings every 90 days. She'd go in and explain what was happening. She's looking for attorneys to work the case and he'd give her another 90 days and she'd go in and tell him the same thing. She can't find an attorney that'll do the case. And so he stretched it out until she was able to, to loop me into this thing. So it was like two years that mm. this, this oh, thing was fine. Awesome. Awesome guy. Um, so, so anyway, she, she ended up going through like 20 of the, you know, superstar guys up in Orange County. They all rejected her case. Wouldn't do it for the same reasons I wouldn't do it. You know, somehow she coach <laughs> controlled my dad into getting me to do it. But anyway, I got into the case and, you know, we worked it and we did the discovery, did a lot of depositions, deposed the social workers, deposed everybody involved, really. And I still was not convinced. I was just looking at it going, look, you know, this is really he said, she said, and I don't believe you. And, and that's always a real problem when the attorney does not believe the client. A jury when they're sitting there, they don't necessarily know what the tension is between an attorney and their client. But if there is tension, they can sense it. They they just sniff it out, and they, their minds. And this is for all human beings. Your mind will immediately go to the worst possible circumstance when there's something that you don't fully understand. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and that was that was the problem. So so one of the first hurdles I had to get over was you know, getting beyond my, and I wouldn't call it disdain for her case, but my disbelief. Mm-hmm. And I, I was never actually able to do that until much later in the case. But what happened is we got to trial and I just made this decision. Okay, I'm, I'm going to just be very conservative. We'll only put on enough evidence to get over what's called a non-suit motion. Once the plaintiff puts on their case, the defendant will file a motion called a non-suit motion to try to dismiss the case, you know, mid-trial based on the plaintiff's failure to have enough evidence to support the claim, right? So I just put on barely enough evidence to get over the non-suit motion. And I didn't make any, any, you know, impassioned or outrageous argument, nothing, nothing that I could possibly, that could come back and bite me in the ass you know, when the defense starts putting up mm-hmm. what I thought was the truth, right? Mm-hmm. And so we made it over the non-suit motion. And um, 
we got into the defendant's case in chief. That's where the defendant gets to start putting on their proof. And it became apparent just uh, really quickly that Deanna was telling the truth. And it, it, it was really tough because, you know, one of the, one of your primary duties to your attorney, it's not necessarily to believe them, but it's, it's to be a zealous advocate for them. Right. And I just got struck by this really, really, really deep sense of betrayal is, is like, Oh shit. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this woman trusted me with at that point in time, her, you know, her entire life. And I had just shot all over it. So, you know, I, I worked my way through the trial. It was a long trial. It was a five-week trial. And mm -hmm. I, was, I was away from my kids, my family for, you know, that whole time. And that, that was hard. It was hard on them. It was hard on me. But they were the same ages as her kids were when they were taken, six and nine. And mm -hmm. I thought about that throughout the rest of the defendant's case, I, I got very like aggressive on uh, that part of the case. And luckily it worked out, you know, it, it, um, we made it, we got a really good verdict. It was the first verdict of its kind in the whole country at the time. And it was the largest verdict of its kind at the time. And I, I you know, thank God it was, if we would have lost that, I can't imagine the sense of, remark the trail that I had uh, after but I came home and this this is that was sort of the you, you talked earlier when we were offline about the red pill moment yeah and when I got home I, I sort of sat down and where I am right now at, at my desk here in front of my computer and I started looking at you know my work and I didn't feel like I had made the right career choice in life. I, I just sat here and I thought, you know, I'm in this for the wrong reasons. And uh, I started, <laughs> I started Googling around medical schools. I thought, oh, well, medical school made it a better place to go. You could knock that out in a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just started thinking about other things. I looked at going back to UCSD, then international relations program and, and then, you know, the medical school, but then I was going to have to take a bunch of undergrad hard science classes and I'd have to do more work for that. I thought about just going into real estate, but I, I was pretty resolute that I was not going to do legal work anymore. And I, I sat here for, I don't know, a long time, weeks. And, you know, I was rejecting cases. My wife just came in one day and she said, oh, what are you doing? I was like, what, what do you mean? She says, well, what are you doing? Your business is going to shit. <laughs> <laughs> and like, she, she works here in the office. She runs all our back office stuff, all the accounting, the, the calendaring, scheduling, all, all the stuff, you know, that it takes to run an office. She does it. So yeah, your business is going to shit. What are you doing? And I just thought, well, I, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. I, I, um, I, I think that my mind and my heart are just in the wrong place. And so we talked about it and she actually came up with the idea. She said, look, you've got something that you're good at and you know, now you know now that there's a need 
So why don't you just try this for a while? Just do these cases. And if it turns out you don't like it, then yeah, go do medical school or whatever, but at least give it a chance. So, and I, yeah, okay. That's, that's what I'll do. And by now, I mean, I was a true believer. I thought, well, these fucking people lied their teeth out and destroyed this mm-hmm. woman's life, destroyed her kids. I'm sure that all of them are liars. <laughs> so, so all these emails, all this stuff that I'd just been ignoring, because after after the verdict, because it was, you know, sort of an unheard of verdict in, in many respects, just because of the kind of case it was and the size of the verdict, I was getting emails from all over the country um, from parents, other parents who, who were facing similar situations. So I started responding to some of those emails and saying, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do your case, mostly in Southern California, because that's close, it's convenient, I didn't have to go anywhere, really. And uh, originally, I would just take the case on email, I said, so I don't even need to meet the client or necessarily even talk to him. So I, I got this flood of work, I was like, holy shit, I can't deal with this. And, you know, some of the cases really weren't cases. And so I had to adjust. I had to adjust um, how we went about taking cases. It's because obviously you can't handle them all. They're very complex. They take mm-hmm. a lot of work, take a lot of time. And if you have too much, you just can't do competent work. So I, I, I imposed a hard limit and sort of cut, cut off the whole taking cases just by email thing. And that's what we've been doing ever since. And that trial was in 2007. And I have a question. How do you uh, decide now? Like, how do you choose? How do you choose a case? How do I choose a case? There's, it's like the gestalt of the case. The first thing that, that I always am cognizant of, you know, and most of, most of the initial contacts come in by telephone. So, and I, I try to speak with everybody that calls and just remember we have active cases. So I have to do some work too. I can't spend right. all the time. Right. But like I, I said earlier, I know people are in a really, really tough situation. You know, not, not just legally, but emotionally when, when, you know, the heavy hand of government touches you, whether it's in relation to your family or anything else. It's, it's serious and it imposes a lot of stress and um, mm-hmm. a lot of strain. And I, I'm very aware of that. I'm very cognizant of it so i try to you know give people when they call the recognition of where they're at where they're calling from but what ends up happening is if if they can't i, I don't have unlimited time to do that I'm, I'm not a therapist so i i can't go as far as i might like to go but <clears throat> what i try to do right at the outset is can they articulate for me in words in five minutes or less, the the heart of their story where it went wrong. And if they can do that, that is the first thing that's going to get my attention. Secondarily, I'm looking for interesting legal issues. Is there some legal issue here where the government, you know, screwed up something that they should not have screwed up? And that's that's the second thing, and that that gets very complex. That gets that mm-hmm. sometimes gets difficult to discern. And then what I'll tell people: if it looks 
like number one, they can articulate their problem. And number two, there's a legal issue there that maybe we can handle. Then I'll tell them, okay, look, send me your petition, send me the detention report, send me jurisdictional report, send me some of the basic documents so that I can review it and get a feel for what happened in your case and what may, where things may have gone sideways in your case. And from there, is there a civil rights claim? Because that's all we do here is, is civil rights work. So if the government violated your constitutional rights, either under 14th Amendment, the First Amendment, or the Fourth Amendment, that's something that we get involved in. Or if they violated rights arising under the Adoptions Act, that's 42 U.S.C. Section 671A and then 675. Either, any, any one of those, I guess, five broad categories, something we can help you with potentially. But I need to know enough about their case to know whether or not they fall into that rubric. So I'll ask for the documents. And we get hundreds of emails every month. And mm -hmm. I do eventually read all of them. I, I know a lot of people out there think, oh, he didn't review my stuff. And it's been months. No, that's not correct. What happens is I'll, I'll review your stuff. I will personally review whatever that you send me. But if there's nothing in there where I can help you, you may not hear back from me. And the reason for that is because we get so many mm -hmm. and yeah. there's, just, there's just not, there's not enough time in the day. I'm just one guy. I got two other attorneys that work here for me, but they do not do the case intake review. And, um, you know, I'm just one guy, man. I, I got to sleep. I've got a family. I've got to eat. So some of that time needs to be set aside to do basic life functions. If there were more hours in the day, I would do more, but you know, there's not. So anyway, that's, that's my story. No, that's I, great. No, oh, we appreciate it. Uh, you know, Sean, it seems like as an outsider and, and I'm obviously not a legal expert, it would seem like if it fell under one of those categories that you mentioned, it should be just be an open and shut case if the evidence is there. But what we've discovered here at Rescue the Fosters is that's not, that's actually not what's going on in this country. The uh, Constitution has been disregarded, like you know, it's uh, it should be on the uh, the uh, dung hill of history or something. <clears throat> um, are you running into that same problem? I, I would suspect out there in California. Um, I, I I don't know if I would describe it exactly exactly like that. I know that there's a, a broad general public perception that. The Constitution is is generally being disregarded, and I think at all levels of government. And you know, as a member of the general public, just watching the news, watching the things that you know are going on. Let me say, I I don't want to say I agree. That the way I want to say it is that I can understand how that might be the perception mm -hmm. of the general public. I, I completely understand and relate. The reality is, though, that when you get into courts, especially the federal district courts, and that's where we do most of our work, although I, I have to admit, like Deanna Fogarty's case, that was in state court. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, Judge Bauer, he, he was, you know, very cognizant of not only the, the constitutional issues, but the legal pressures on either side of those issues. And, and he was a super smart guy. I, I, I don't know if he's still around or not. This was, you know, that case was, geez, like 12 years, more than that, 
15 years ago. He may have retired. Yeah. Now, I don't know, but he really put a lot of, and that was my first civil rights case ever. So I was learning as I was going through that process and he, he read every single case I gave him. He read every single case the other side gave him. And we had long hours of arguments, not in front of the jury on, on, you know, how many angels dance on the head of a pen. <laughs> and he mm -hmm. sorted that stuff out, man. He threaded the needle and, and, um, that he, you know, even now, after I've been doing this for so long, I've been, had so many other cases, I still look back at him with a tremendous amount of respect for the work that he put into it and for the attention that he paid to the constitutional jurisprudence that applied to the case. And so, so that's, that's really one of the reasons that I'm not exactly disagreeing with your hypothesis, Yeah, but there, there are, there are people out there who believe in the concepts that, you know, form the foundation of our nation. And there are, there are people out there, you know, in, in powerful places, both on the Ninth Circuit and the district courts and the state courts, the state appellate courts, who do believe, you know, in those principles that are enshrined in our constitution. So I'm not, I'm not quite as skeptical as a lot of people are just because I see it in the work that I do, we would not be winning you know, a substantial number of our cases if there weren't people out there that believed in you know the, the foundations of our law. Well, I got to say that's very comforting to hear. <laughs> I, I'm glad I'm wrong on my premise um, because especially in this movement, we've seen so many families hurt by the decisions that come down from mm -hmm. these, these family courts. And, and I'd like to kind of touch on the family court I was unaware until I got into this that the family court was not before a jury. Mm -hmm. It was it was game set match when it comes to the judge decision. Uh, that mm -hmm. to me, I, I I scratch my head and I think how is that possible under a constitutional republic that we it just comes down to a judge's decision and not a jury of your peers? Um, how did that ever begin? Yeah. And, you know, I have the same problem with it out, out here. There are juvenile dependency courts. We don't. And in California, the, the family courts is completely separate court. And the way it works here is it's maybe it's different in other states. I don't know. But the juvenile dependency court takes precedent over all other courts when we're talking about kids and custody issues. So, for example, if if you're, you know, a mom and dad, you're going through a divorce, you've got a couple of kids, you're in family law arguing over custody and the family court judge issues an order saying, OK, it's 50 50. If somebody makes a complaint or CPS gets involved, the, fa the family court's got its order over here saying 50 50 juvenile dependency court can just jump right in, erase that and say, nope, we're doing this all over under a different set of standards and rules and um yeah it's 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 a jacked up system man but it's a legislative problem the legislature set it up the way they set it up and there's no real way to address it other than legislatively people have raised challenges constitutional challenges that went all the way to the u.s supreme court and were rejected wow so yeah. it's like what do you do with that? And even the, the burden of proof, it's crazy. 
for detention at the detention hearing out here in California, the burden of proof is preponderance of the evidence. That's like more likely than not. You know, that's a civil. In fact, here by statute, juvenile dependency matters are civil matters. So they, they apply this civil burden at the, at the initial stages. And then when we get to the jurisdictional stages where we're going to start talking about taking jurisdiction and that leads ultimately maybe to terminating parental rights. No, that's only clear and convincing. It's not even beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's not even a criminal standard. And right. which, which troubles me, you know, from a legal perspective, just intellectually, because let's think about this for a minute. We know, and the jurisprudence out of the Supreme Court is clear on this point, that the relationship between a child and its parent or children and parents, that familial, you know, integration, that familial relationship is a fundamental right under the constitution, right? It's fundamental right in the first amendment, fifth amendment, the uh, 14th amendment. And as, as far as the child's concerned under the fourth amendment is covered broad basis, right? And it's fundamental. And we also know from the applicable jurisprudence that when there is state action that affects a fundamental right that it's subject to strict scrutiny, right? And strict scrutiny is like the highest standard um, that, that the courts will apply when they're assessing government action. So, so if we, we operate under that premise and then we look at what's going on here, I mean, you can go out and murder somebody mm -hmm. and you will get a more just and fair process for murder right? than you will if you're accused of belting your child. And, and it just does not. And, and you'll get a jury, too. I mean, you can go right. kill somebody. Right. You're going to get a jury as a matter of right. Right. Here, where they're, they're affecting a, the same level of fundamental liberty interest, yes. you know, the, the criminal yep. and the person accused of child abuse. It's, it's both those interests are fundamental liberty interests protected by the Constitution. So they're, they're basically the same or entitled, one would think, to the same level of protection. But I look at, at least in California, and I think Arizona, you don't get a jury either. Um, I, I don't know a state that you do. I mean, I, think, I've I, think I, I want to say, um, you know, every now and then I put on these classes called nuts and bolts. They're nuts and bolts. It's like a nuts and bolts series. Mm -hmm. And attorneys will come out from all over the country. I'm, I'm trying to encourage other attorneys to do this work. So I show them, you know, I give all our work uh -huh. products and stuff. Oh developed over the years for free i don't even charge them. Yeah, yeah froze up uh you're huh? good sylvia you're good she was frozen you're, you're good oh, gotcha. yep. and in that process i meet attorneys from other states and i don't remember which state it was maybe it's ohio or or michigan i don't i don't know which state but mm -hmm. um, at least one state you do get a jury trial for termination proceedings I, I just don't. OK, know. well, I, I'd be curious to know what state yeah. that is, because so yeah. far I, I uh, haven't I, found a state. Yeah, I think it, it, I think there's at least one. I, I can tell mm -hmm. you definitively that out here in California and Arizona, I'm pretty sure in Washington, you do not get a jury. It's all decided by right. one person, a judge, which all on its own is a dangerous proposition. Oh, it's scary. Terrible. Yeah. yeah. We're human, right. We're all yeah, human. Absolutely. We're all 
and and everybody has a bias. I mean, you're, you're exactly. I don't care whatever you say, someone you have a bias. You know, um, Sean. So you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong on this. You're saying that this is definitely a legislative problem. This 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 not having a jury and family. So, what is the solution to that? I mean, do we just get in our law lawmakers' faces and say, "Come on, this is ridiculous"? Yeah. Like, you know, it, I mean, is that basically what has to happen? I I believe that that should happen. I, okay. I think parents. You know, whether you have kids or not, it's not even a parent should be outraged. Right. If, if you're a human being, you should be outraged. Right. The way that the child protection system is being run, it, it's it's an outrage. And the taxpayer is funded. I can tell you, in <laughs> one of our cases we did against County of Los Angeles 2016, it was Duval versus County of Los Angeles. We, we had discovery both on the county and on the state DCSS. Um, and the, the question was, how much money, how much money are, are we spending every year on this jacked up system to go out and take kids, not, you know, have adequate investigations, then we put them in foster care and we don't treat them properly. How much money? In 2016, just county of los angeles 2.2 billion dollars oh my gosh that's one county wow. one county that's the problem in one year so it's, extrapolate that out over the entire country how much money is that that's insane i can't even believe that so, so it's a huge, huge so then, industry. yeah so how do you <laughs> This is the, this is what we're always up against. We the people. Mm -hmm. You've got these politicians that are you know padding their pockets with lobbyists and all these other groups that are funding this stuff, using our money against us. This is the thing that just drives me insane at night when I try to go to sleep. Yeah. Um, and I think, how do you fight something like that? It's 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 such an uphill. It's it's a Mount Everest hill that we've got to climb, and it's like how do you go against a machine that's been in place for decades now? maybe even, you know, half a century, probably at least. Yeah. And how do you go against that and say, you know what, enough is enough. I mean, what do the people have to do to end this nonsense? And it's not just in the family. I mean, we see it all through politics yeah. and, and law. So, yeah, that's, that's the fundamental problem. And it, I've, I've sort of looked at that exact question just in, you know, my little pond where, where, you know, I can have an impact. And I, I don't know what can be done other than individually at a local level. You know, all, all politics ultimately is communication between individuals, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, in order for groups of individuals to have any influence at all over their elected representatives, number one, there needs to be a lot of them. And number two, it costs money. Well, yeah. You know, most of the people impacted by this system, one of the reasons that they're so negatively and so heavily impacted is because they don't have the economic resources mm -hmm. to put together, you know, a coalition mm -hmm. of people or a bunch of lobbyists or whatever to go affect change in government. So the path that I've taken, recognizing, you know, that hurdle, that problem, the path I've taken I call it the whole death by a thousand cuts, which is why I still do this work. Every single lawsuit that we file that, that's successful, there's plenty that we file that are not successful. But every single lawsuit that we file that is successful 
causes the government agency that we're working against to implement some minor change, some little change. And, I, and, and you know, when I have this conversation with the defense attorneys and the adjusters and risk assessment people from the government, every time that we have a settlement conference, I say, hey, look, I would love for you guys to put me out of business. The only, the only way you're going to put me out of business is to have policies and training for your workers that can yeah. work with all right. All you have to do is it's so simple. You can shut me down overnight. Just follow the mm -hmm. law. Yep. They won't do it. Mm -hmm. They won't do it. I, I had one with uh, San Diego PD where they'd seized a mom's baby without a warrant, you know, in the middle of the night, no basis for it. And the mom, she was willing to give them a hundred thousand dollar discount on the settlement if the city would just enact a policy that comports with Rogers and Mabe. Those are the two big cases out here in the Ninth Circuit that kind of control when you can take a kid or when the government can take a kid. All the city had to do to save themselves a hundred grand was promulgate a policy that comported with Ninth Circuit law and train their officers. That's it. <laughs> They said, no, we'll pay the extra money. Something they should have wow. already been doing. Unbelievable. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's, too it's too lucrative. That's the problem. It is. It is. That's, that's I, I would love, I, I think, and I've said this on other shows, I think, and this is probably impossible because it requires money, but a lot of these people need to be investigated, privately investigated, because I there's no way that much money is going around and it's not buying, you know, the Escalade, buying the house on the beach, um, well, I'm, I'm fancy sure it clothes. Is. I, mm -hmm. I mean, think, think about this for a second, okay? If, if you look at, and you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, I've forgotten about this. It's been so many years since I did the deposition. I, ha I haven't had the conversation that we're having right now, so I've forgotten things, right? You're reminding me. But I did a deposition of the director of social services for Orange County. It must have been 2014, maybe. His name was Michael Riley, and we talked about this exact issue, the money. And I, I think Orange County at that point in time, their budget was like $982 million, not quite as big as L.A., but still substantial. And, and I asked him about that. Well, how do we break that down? What, what do you guys do with that money? I mean, how does that work? And what we got into was a description of the funding metric and how it is based on the number of kids they take in you know, year over year and the way it works generally, and you'll have to watch the deposition in detail because I'm just doing this from recollection. The way it works generally is we look at last year and let's, let's assume we took a hundred kids in last year. Well, our, our budget for this year is going to be based on however many kids we took in last year. So we have to take at least as many kids as we did last year to make sure that our next year budget is at least level. Now, now, we know that government does not have a tendency to stay at the same mm -hmm. level or size. It grows over time. All bureaucracies grow yeah. over time. There's natural tendencies. So essentially, if, if we project in the growth that we know is going to happen year over year, that means that every year, you know, if we start with our base year of 100 kids, for every year successive to maintain our current growth level and not, you know, get a shrinking budget, we have to get a few more kids than we did in that first base year. Now, now the secondary problem that comes into play, and I asked him this question, well, what happens if, you know, there's 
you just don't. There's not enough kids being abused. He says, well, that becomes a problem because we have fixed overhead. We can only lay off so many workers, and it's hard to do that because they're all unionized. Um, what ends up happening is the county, our, our funding level, our basis goes down for next year. And then out of the county's general fund now, the, the money that's for, for road maintenance, sewers, stuff like that, that shortfall in dependency gets taken out of the county general fund. And I have to, you know, the director, I have to go explain to the county supervisors why I need $100 million. And that becomes a problem. So the, the simplest solution is just grab more kids. Sylvia, does that sound familiar? This is, well, this is why I had a quota when mm -hmm. I was a case manager. You know, yeah. we were we had a goal and we had to meet that goal. And we were told that if we reunited kids or they got adopted, we had to bring in more kids. And it was a huge pressure. And this was what I had a problem with. This was the reason I left as a case manager. Yes, it's, 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 you know, and, and I don't think that Congress, when they were enacting the funding statutes, when they're enacting ASPA or the Adoptions Act or CAPTA, I don't think that they fought it out. They did not intend, I'm sure they did not intend to build in this perverse incentive to go out and grab kids willy-nilly. I'm, I'm certain that that was not the intention. The problem is they didn't think it out very well. You yep. know, the, it's like these 900 page bills that nobody reads and they vote yes. Right. Same sort of problem here is no, I, I'm not convinced anybody read the legislation because on its face, it actually sets up this incentive to grab kids. And then not only that, but mm -hmm. necessarily maybe to lie about your reasons for grabbing them, because another part of the training that at least, and this is from a deposition in Los Angeles, they actually have a training sheet. It says right on it, no finding means no funding. And at every stage, wow. of, yeah, it's crazy. At every stage in the case, there are specific verbatim findings that the juvenile court has to make in order to continue getting funded, both from the state and federal governments for that child. And, and they train their workers you need to get these findings. Otherwise, the county's going to have to make up the shortfall. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a pressure to where I was like, okay, if I see a kid on the street, I cannot go grab that kid because it cannot just be a kid that I place on my caseload. Like, that's not how it works. Like, how am I supposed to get more kids? Like, oh, that well, yeah. was the conversation. Yeah. Well, you grab them and then <laughs> lie about it. <laughs> right. that's, that's about it you know where else we see this sean we see this in the universities universities that need grant money for their scientific research they do the same thing it's amazing how many dis archaeological discoveries happen literally a week or two before their grant money is due right they like oh we need something we need something and all of a sudden they find some you know femur bone out in some desert and say oh this is from you know the the ten thousand five hundred years ago it's it's the same thing like everybody's trying to keep that money yeah, throw, some, throw some yeah. chicken bones and some yeah oh, right. look what we got. <laughs> oh what a corrupt system yeah well you know and that's another thing is that i th i think this is true I'm, I'm i'm not sure maybe i should just couch it in terms of opinion but the problems that I see in my work, just with the you know dependency system, I believe that they're pervasive 
throughout all agencies at all level of government. It's not mm -hmm. just the area that I'm working in. I have a somewhat limited view. But based on what I see and the way it's set up, the financial incentives, it would make sense to me based on the dysfunction, you know, as a member of the general public, just based on the dysfunction that we see everywhere in government, it would make sense to me that all agencies at all levels are suffering from the same kind of septic uh, culture. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're getting calls all over, all over the U.S., um, and that's why I asked how you determine, because we are, I mean, it is, it's exhausting. Uh, we can't keep up. We don't have yeah. enough time. We don't have enough people. Um, yeah. and we're not lawyers. And that's the other thing is how do we get more lawyers? Mm -hmm. That's, uh, that's a, that's actually a really, it's an important question, but it's a tough question to answer. I can tell you, I, I realized probably in 2011, that there just is the, the reason that we're having all this trouble with the dependency system is because there are not enough lawyers coming in and fighting mm -hmm. for the parents that are getting jacked over or jacked around by the system, unjustly, unfairly jacked around by the mm -hmm. system. I, I don't question, just so everybody's clear, I don't question that there are kids out there who need help sure. and there's families right. who need help. I don't question that. I, I think that the, mm -hmm. the underlying premise is, is correct and it's a laudable goal to help those kids. So, you know, as a matter of practice, if I'm looking at a case and, you know, it looks like, well, you know, this worker, there may have been a reason to intervene with this family. I'll look pretty closely you know, because it's not every case where, you know, we didn't, that the family didn't need some kind of government intervention. But uh, the vast majority of the cases I review, the vast majority are situations where the government should not have been involved. And the reason they were involved, obviously, was for the funding. But the God, I got off on that. I forgot what your question was. Well, I got to say, you know, how to, do we get my lawyers? <laughs> yeah, more lawyers. Oh, yeah, to get the lawyers. So so I recognized early on that there just weren't enough lawyers doing it. And that if, if that's the whole death by a thousand cuts things, if we can get more lawyers involved to just sue these guys, because mm -hmm. even, even a lawsuit that loses costs the government resources. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the more resources you can drain from the agency, the more likely the agency is to start promulgating policies, giving training, just trying to avoid the lawsuits. They don't have to keep spending money on their own lawyers. And that's with losing lawsuits. Some of those lawsuits are going to win and some are going to win big. Those ones hurt. They almost always will affect a policy change after they take a big hit. So that was the theory is, OK, well, you know, this is going to be easy. I just go out. I've got all these verdicts and settlements, you know, some of them pretty, pretty decent size. That should be enough to motivate attorneys to come in and, and do this work because they're going to get paid. Yeah, well, it turns out it's not enough to motivate them. It's, uh, it's a complex area of law. It's difficult work. It's very risky. It takes a lot of hours to litigate a case, and it takes money, and none of your clients have any money to pay mm -hmm. the cost. So in addition to devoting you know, 3,000 hours of your life to a case, 
you're also going to throw up, you know, a couple hundred grand of your own money oh, wow. to push the case through to trial. And your risk of loss is incredibly high. Right. So not, a, try to... not a lot of incentive for an attorney to get involved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go try to sell that to yeah. somebody who's knocking down a couple million a year doing personal injury that mm-hmm. uh, where the insurance company cuts checks. It's it, That's a hard sell. So, so we need money. Yeah, that's fundamentally the problem is is that to attract talent, you know, you need you need somebody either, you know, that took the red pill. I mean, like I did, I, I was in a particularly advantageous position because I, I'd already come from a different career where we were pretty successful and I'd socked away a little bit of a, a nest egg. And then my first seven years in practice, I was making pretty decent money. And, you know, I, we live a very Spartan lifestyle. We're not, you know, out, you know, going to restaurants, spending hundreds of dollars on meals. And we're, we're fairly simple people. And so I had, I had been able over the years to really develop a substantial work chest so that I didn't have to be chasing revenue all the time. I could kind of do cases that were like this, that are more complex, more interesting. You know, I, I didn't. I, I didn't have to do door law. That's what I refer to it as. It's somewhat pejorative. I don't know if I should say that, but you know, this this is at least in my view, this is kind of a cut above just standard everyday run of the mill. You know, right? Ambulance chaser type stuff, mm-hmm. right? And that makes it more interesting and more challenging. It, it also, you know, the costs and the risk involved make it more difficult to incentivize other attorneys to get into the work and you know in california there's only like seven of us we, we all know each other real well we run across each other and we help on cases like, but two of those guys are retiring so it's going to winnow it down to five there's i don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 years if other people don't you know kind of pick up the torch and hmm. start fighting the fight so wow. in your experience Sean, and, and maybe with the other attorneys, I mean, what is the success rate? Is it 50%? Is it 40%? Is it 70? You know, what, what's... Uh, I would say our appellate success rate is pretty good. We're, we probably, you know, it's probably close to 50-50 on reversals. Um, but just so you understand, to have any kind of appellate success rate at all, that means you lost in the trial court. Right. So you gotta, you loser to be up on appeal and but a 50 percent success rate is good and what that means is that you change law because when our cases get up on appeal Mm. i'd say probably a third of them get published a published decision is a change in law Mm. and Mm. in the ninth circuit even unpublished decisions potentially have the effect of of impacting trial court decisions as if they were published so with a 50 percent you know, hit rate on our appellate practice, tell you right now, law has been changed because we lost. Okay. So that's a good thing. So you're setting new precedents then that, okay. Yeah. Well, that's, that's (laughs) good. Yeah. It's a developing, developing area of law. That's Mm -hmm. how the law develops. It's either by legislative enactment or by judicial Mm -hmm. interpretation. And we're, we're, where we're working, we're doing our work to sort of force the change is on the side of judicial interpretation and then also just forcing them to promulgate policies and give training that sort of stuff through pain 
I call it, you know, like pain compliance. If you take enough money out of the government, they feel pain and yep. then they'll adjust to try to avoid paying you next mm -hmm. time. Right. Mm -hmm. So that that's that's been sort of our solution is, you know, affect judicial change through the development of the law and then compliance change by extracting, you know, large settlements and verdicts. I don't know if that answered your question. Oh, no, that's I yeah. Ramble, I ramble too much. No, those are this is great. <laughs> you're answering you're answering a ton of my questions that I've had for a long time because we don't really have a legal mind to help us with this stuff. And it's nice right. to be able to be inside the system and understand it from the inside out. And, mm -hmm. uh, and what you're doing with the nuts and bolts um, shows, I'm going to actually look into that after. Um, I think that's such a great idea to, to get other people mm -hmm. included in this that might say, you know what, I could probably do something with this. I could help. <clears throat> and I think that's, um, that's necessary in this, this day and age we're living in. I mean, this is a scary thing. I mean, I forgot what the number is of children every year that are taken, you know, kidnapped by the government. It's it's out. It's just outrageous. That number's yeah. huge. It's it's a huge number. It's I don't know if it's in the hundreds of thousands, but it might be. I, I can tell you, I had discovery on this issue in Arizona because we were looking at a warrantless seizure case. We we're contemplating bringing it as a class action. So we needed to know, okay, we have this 20-year window that we can look back, you know, based on the statute of limitations, we have a 20-year window we can look back on. So we asked the state of Arizona, how many kids did you seize in the last 20 years? And at that point in time, they didn't have a warrant procedure in place. So they would have all been without a warrant. Wow. wow. 79,000 kids. Wow. Without a, without a warrant. I mean, that's literally just coming... Like kicking down your door and taking yeah. like yeah, yeah. seventy nine thousand kids in the last twenty years. It's unbelievable yeah, to me. I, I saw it and I just saw holy crap. I mean, <laughs> how much money is that? How many lives destroyed? Every 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 family, the siblings, I mean it's Jesus. Right. Christ. That is unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's a huge social crater, you know, as if there's mm -hmm. a, a bomb that just yeah blew the guts out of it. I, I don't even we're still we're still looking at a, a way to get a class action on those guys, but it's that's another very very difficult. I, I was going to say I, that's kind of where I was going with this. I was thinking like I mean there has to be a broad class action suit brought against these these yeah. uh, state and local governments that are doing this, but again it requires a lot of money, a lot of time and effort, a lot of lawyers getting involved that don't have the time or don't want to get involved. Mm -hmm. They have a successful firm or. So it's this is the uphill battle we're all up against. But um, yeah. I just I, I've had this sense, Sean, for a while now. Like this is the time. Like I think we're really getting close to solutions to some of these problems. How it's going to play out? That's the part I'm a little. Uh, un, that's the unknown part for me. Like because it does require a ton of money, and that's what everything boils down to in this world. Everything's about money. Um, yeah. Ultimately, ultimately, it is. Yeah. And yeah. And, and it's about. It's about the difficulty in getting the money in these cases. I guess that's a good way to put yeah. it. But again, you look at the comparison. I have a bunch of uh, attorney friends and they've been encouraging me for years, actually. Why They say, why are you doing this work, man? It's so hard. There's, you know, no money. I, some of the numbers we get are pretty big numbers, you know, in general, but when you compare that with a $100 million verdict that you can get in a brain injury case or a $50 million verdict you can get in a brain injury case, mm -hmm. 
the financial comparison really starts looking like what we do here is pretty minuscule. I mean, we, we may like look at the forwardy uh, verdict, $4.9 million. That's a big number. That's mm -hmm. that, that was a good mm -hmm. number for that type of case at that time. But with the same amount of work, the brain injury guy brings in 20 million. Where do you think that wow. guy that tremendous talent to tremendous intelligence, tremendous work ethic? Where do you think he is best off voting mm -hmm. his limited time? You know, that yeah. that's 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 really the balance. Yeah, I mean, look, let's face it, all of us human natures, let's work less and make more money. Right. So, I mean, yeah. like, like, I, yeah, that's just human nature. Um, you know, uh, Christopher David in the chat said, what can we go after their bonds? Um, I, I'm not bonding out here. I don't, okay, I, don't I was going to ask that. Yeah, I didn't. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've had that question before, and I don't really know what people are talking about because California, Arizona, Washington, there's there's no bond requirement. In fact, there's not even. This is this is what's hilarious. They call themselves social workers, right? I don't know what they call themselves where you guys are. Social Same thing. Yeah. Here, they they call themselves social workers. But they don't have a license. Many of them don't even have a master's yep. in social work. Mm -hmm. because, you know, I can't even find them in the system. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're not licensed clinical mm -hmm. social no. workers. They're not licensed. They're, they, they don't have a license. They're nothing. <laughs> That's It's the same. It's the same out here. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's amazing to me that we give them all this tremendous power and, and responsibility. Mm -hmm. But... They're not required to have licenses. They don't have substantial training. We don't have policies that constrain them, and and we just set them out in the universe to. And then they have out. immunity. Well, yeah. On top of that, they have immunity both under state law and potentially, you know, qualified and absolute immunity. Although we've been nicking away at that in the Ninth Circuit, other other parts of the country, it's a little bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's been substantial, I told you that one way to affect change in law is through the appellate process. Mm -hmm. There has been substantial appellate litigation over the last probably 20 years or so that's really swung the needle away from qualified immunity when social workers take kids without warrants, when they lie to continue the detention, when they... Um, you know, don't adhere to their statutory duties that are set out in 42 U.S.C. section 671 and 675. There's a whole bunch of areas where we've been able to kind of nick away at immunity. Back in 2007, for example, a social worker, you know, putting a bunch of lies in their detention report probably would have been entitled to absolute immunity. Right. Mm -hmm. Because they're they fill a prosecutorial role when they're doing that. And prosecutors traditionally at common law were entitled to immunity. So the all the courts were saying, OK, well, if you're attacking a social worker for their conduct in connection with the prosecution of a juvenile dependency case, they're absolutely immune. So all the stuff that we do now was cut off, basically. There was a case, though. Bob Powell did it. You should get him on your show. He's a funny yeah. guy. Oh, we'd Wonder love to have Bob. Bob Powell? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he did the uh, right to lie case. He picked it up. He did that. and But he also did a case called Beltran. And I think it was against... Beltran? Uh, yeah, Beltran versus County of Santa Clara, I think it was. And that was a game changer as far as absolute immunity goes. Because the, okay. the appellate court, Ninth Circuit, just said, no, fuck no. You can't lie in a court document mm -hmm. there's no immunity for lying if mm -hmm. you're lying you're 
you're a complaining witness. You're not a prosecutor. <laughs> so they dumped it right there, published decision. <laughs> that in, incidentally, uh, my verdict in Fogarty had come out and the initial Beltran decision applied absolute immunity, but there was a very well-written dissent. And the, the other side, Orange County filed a, a uh, motion for directed verdict based on the original published decision in Beltran where they applied absolute immunity. In our motion, I argued the dissent. And what is so cool, what Judge Bauer did is he read Beltran and he, he got up there, he read everybody's papers and he said, well, you know, it's sort of a funny situation because the Ninth Circuit's published decision says absolute immunity applies. But, you know, we're in a state court proceeding. And it's not totally clear, and the case isn't totally on point, so I'm free to look around at other things and make my own decision. <laughs> I and like I this like guy. Right? <laughs> I like the dissent, so we're going to go that way. And then, like, two weeks later, Bob had filed a um, request for an en banc review of the original published Beltran, which was granted. And in Bonk, that's that's where the, the, the larger panel, I think it's like an 11 judge panel of the Ninth Circuit, steps up, takes the case again to review the three judge panel's decision. So the 11 judge panel took it up, immediately depublished it, and then came out with a new version of Beltran saying, yeah, the dissent's right. You guys are done. Hmm. And that, that sort of cinched it for us because, you know, the, the county had appealed Judge Bauer's decision. And while the appeal, appeal was pending, the en banc decision in Beltran came out and just completely blew out absolute immunity. So it, it all just kind of worked together, you know, it's like mm -hmm. one step than the other, and the timing was perfect. And that's how I met Bob, actually. I met him in 2007. I went up and watched the oral argument on the en banc decision because I was tracking that. That was going to potentially make the difference between you know us making it through on the appeal and us getting reversed so i was very very attentive to what what bob was doing there hmm. you know, have to send him away <laughs> yeah for sure yeah um sean we had uh sheriff richard mack i'm not sure if you know who he is he was on a couple weeks ago he he got pretty popular i think it was 1996 or 97 he had taken the clintons of all people to uh federal to the supreme court and he won, and he was the oh, first wow. sheriff no, ever to, totally yeah. Unaware. And it was it was something with the, the Second Amendment. I can't remember exactly what the case was. But he was the first ever to do that, and he survived. He's still alive. <laughs> they didn't. Yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> so, that's, that's something all that, on its own. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yes. probably end up dead. Very high probability, yeah. Uh, but we had him on a couple weeks, and he brought up some very interesting things. Suicide, suicide. Not Su suicided, yes, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> two, two bullets in the back of the head, suicide. Um, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> Gosh, so sad we have to talk like that. Um, but he, he brought up a great point. He, he actually started a foundation. I'm going to make sure I say it right here. It's the uh, Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association. Uh, and what he did is he gathered uh, a whole bunch of sheriffs across the nation to join his, his I guess, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, organization, nonprofit. And he teaches them how to use the Constitution to protect those that they're supposed to be protecting in their jurisdiction. And so, and I thought, well, that's so simple, but it's genius, you know, like, so I asked him, he actually had his, his own grandson, uh, was it, I can't remember. It was his, his son grandson. and daughter's kids were taken illegally under some false premise. Yeah, some BS thing. Total sure. BS. 
And luckily, one of them got they got back within four days. But the other one's been gone for over ten years. The other two kids haven't seen him. Wow. And so he, what he said, I asked him. I says, well, in he, this is the irony. He oversaw uh, child abuse over twelve elementary schools in his district when he was a detective back in the late nineties. And he said, and I says, this sounds pretty odd that they'd come after the guy that was looking into yeah. this stuff. And he's, and I asked him, I says, how often did you recommend that CPS come and take the kids? He says, hardly ever. He says, yeah. he says, we'd show up and he says, we're there to protect families. We might take the dad out of the house if we saw that he was a danger or the mother, you know, if she's a you know, drunk or something. He says, but we weren't take, removing kids. And yeah. so they, we think they probably came after him because of the work he had been promoting. And now, you know, he has this, this, uh, uh nonprofit. And I think it's such a great idea. It's so simple constitutional mm-hmm. that the sheriffs have the right to stand up for the jurisdiction they're over and protect the people over the well, state well, government you know, and the governor. There's actually some legal support for the proposition that the sheriffs or the police, you know, law enforcement who are called out to sort of, uh, be the muscle to support these CPS workers when they're taking kids, there's some legal support for the proposition that if the sheriff or the cop believes, reasonably believes that the social worker is doing something that's violating the parents or the children's constitutional rights, they have a duty to intervene to stop that violation. Now, I haven't been successful with that yet. I've, 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 Oh, we need to look into that. Mm-hmm. There's a case called Boyd v. Benton, B-O-Y-D versus Benton, B-E-N-T-O-N. And there's a whole line of other cases that relate to an officer's duty to intercede, to prevent or to stop constitutional violations. Usually you see it in the excessive force context, mm-hmm. but we've been working on applying it in the cross-agency context where we have a social, and this is how you usually see it, is a social worker is going to go out. She knows she's going to seize kids. She knows it's probably a bullshit deal. Mm-hmm. So she'll call the cops to come in and kind of give her the muscle, right? Right. The cops will come in and they'll see what's going on. And they'll say, hey, um, hmm, I don't really want to have a part in this. So they'll like stand in the corner and kind of cross their arms and say, oh, God, I'm uncomfortable with what the hell's going on here. But they won't intercede to stop anything. So typically, what we'll do is we'll sue them along with the workers. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. usually, what usually what ends up happening is is the cops. You know, they'll come clean. And they'll say, "Yeah, I saw this whole thing going down. I was like, holy shit! <laughs> I didn't see any problem." But you know, that's not my job. And they're a different agency. They're the experts. I have this um, one video. The guy was awesome, man. It's Matthew Miller. That was his name. The cop. And the case was Pellerin versus uh, state of, or Pellerin versus Wagner. She is a social worker for the state of Arizona. And uh, I had originally sued the cop and the police department for failure to intervene, failure to intercede. But when I took the cop's depot, like, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes into the depot, I knew there's like this little voice in the back of my head saying, oh, my God, we got to get this guy out. He's a friendly. Got to dismiss him. This is done. We want to just use him against the workers. He's this great guy. Good looking guy. It's like he walked in off GQ magazine or something. (laughs) Sort of obviously worked out. Great shape. Had four kids of his own. And uh, he had been called out that night to the social worker said to document to take photos to document the injuries to the kids. So I asked him, so why were you out there? 
He said, well, I was out there to document. I said, well, to document what? He said, well, I was out there to document the injuries or the lack of injuries mm. to kids. Mm -hmm. said, okay, so what did you document? So the lack of injuries, <laughs> dude. So what we do is on my YouTube channel, my son's been doing this project. He uh, is taking all, you know, all of our depositions. I videotape them. Mm. So he's been taking the videotape depositions from these cases and, you know, cutting out the confidential stuff like the kids' names and stuff like that. And then throwing them up on YouTube and what, what I, when I'm busy, I can't really do it, but I try to sort of sit in each night when he's airing these things. And, you know, I'll give commentary. A lot of parents are doing pro per litigation. So I'll give some practice tips. You know, this is how you might do something. This is how I would approach it, that sort of thing. And he's been doing that for a couple months and we've got Matthew. Oh yeah, that's it. And we've got Matthew Miller up there and <laughs> He's such a great guy. <laughs> but anyway, right, right. I don't remember if it was before the depot. It had to have been after the depot because I hadn't met the guy yet. But uh, I think I was conversing with his attorney, you know, in the days leading up to the depot. And his attorney was just telling me, hey, look, this guy can be your friend. So you guys should cut him loose. And I thought, well, you know, I need to actually hear it under oath. And once, once we got through his depot, I was like, dude, you're so out of this case. In fact, you're, you are now our constitutional expert. <laughs> yeah, it was really, it was really <laughs> funny. Well, Sean, uh, I know Sylvia's got to get going. She's running a little later. Yeah, she's got, sorry. she's got an hour drive. I would love me. I, Sean, I, I would oh, love to tough. have you back on and get a little deeper into some of this stuff. If you can ever come back. Oh um, yeah. I, I uh, will just set it up. I got to do great. weekends it's during the week. I'm That's really. We can, we'll make it work one way or another. Yeah, we appreciate you so much and all the work you're doing and everything you've done out there in California. Uh, just like I said in the beginning, I wish we could get you out here on our on the left. Uh, you know, you're on the left coast. Let's get you out on the right coast and, and get you working out here in some, some of these big. But, you know, there's hopefully we can get this problem solved. I mean, we're all aiming for the same thing and uh, we just yeah. stay in our lane where I think we're going to fix it. Uh, guys, go ahead and visit his website. The Law Offices of Sean A. McMillan, Attorneys at Law. That is, uh, it's actually in the uh, description on both uh, Foxhole and Rumble. If you guys want to check that out, all his social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, are also there, and uh, the YouTube channel is also there in the description, so you guys can check them out. The YouTube channel has quite a bit of stuff on it. I know there's there's a lot of parents out there that have trouble finding attorneys, which you know I totally understand. We talked about that earlier. Why right. it's so? And so we do publish stuff there like little how we're going to start a how-to series we just did the first uh one on how to file a tort claim and then i got slammed with a bunch of work but we're going to start putting that up and then we also my son put together a patreon channel where he's uploading a lot of the written work oh, product good. The case. and that's, okay. that's you know he, he's keeping the price really low it's like eight bucks or something to get in or 12 bucks so that you know people again i understand the people mm -hmm. that are in this situation they don't have you know mm -hmm. money to really pursue these things so he's putting a lot of energy into getting the written work product up there so people can use it like a template right you don't have to reinvent the wheel do the research to figure it out it's there and we've done it and he's not hiding anything he's putting our work the opposition the other side's work and the judge's orders so you can see you know, what got traction with the court and what didn't. 
and mm. you know, it's all a learning process. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, you have to lose to learn, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. No, that's fantastic. And you know, it's such. I'm glad you're mindful of the money situation with with these people that are usually yeah. involved, and <laughs> also the legal side of it, and saying, hey, people can learn from this stuff. You know, and even yeah. if even and I know the you know the pro se and that, that would be something else I'd like to talk about on another broadcast pro se, but um, but uh, Olivia or Olivia Olivia is my future daughter in law. I just called Sylvia <laughs> Olivia. <laughs> Her dad is a lawyer. That's why I'm he's he's a Freudian, there, uh, Freudian slip maybe, but he's actually uh, he's a he's a pretty big time lawyer here in Michigan. That's why I had her on my mind because I'm gonna try to get him on the show eventually, uh, but. Uh, Sylvia, get going. I'm going to hang up with Sean. Yeah. I know you got to get out of here. But uh, see you. I'll talk to you after. Thanks. Call Thanks, me tonight. guys. Yeah. Bye. Nice take, to meet you. Take care. Yes, you too. Yeah, that was <laughs> Freudian slip. That's funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my my uh, So my son's uh, future father-in-law, he, I don't know if you're aware of Adam. It's Amer- uh, what is it? Divorce, American Divorce, Divorce Lawyers of Michigan. I can't remember. It's, it's a pretty big um, corporation here in Michigan firm. And they do all the divorce cases, but I know they they've dealt with CPS and some other issues. So I'm gonna be talking to him soon. So it was kind of on my mind talking to you, and I <laughs> had the Freudian slip of saying her name. So that's funny. It's all uh, good. No, yeah. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, Sean, I Sean, I man, I appreciate you so much, and uh, I'm I'm glad we got to meet today, and I'm, I look forward to having you back on. And um, it's just you're doing God's work out there. I mean, it's this that I, we need more of you, but I'm glad that there's at least one that's doing it. And like you said, I mean, I hope. Uh, you said there's only seven of you out there and it's going down to five. So I hope that, you know, other people will take the reins and, and keep the, keep the train moving. Well, you know, put the word out. And like I said, I do these nuts and bolts classes, both for parents and attorneys. And, um, you know, generally I'm, I'm happy, especially for attorneys. If somebody calls and they, they have a question or they need a consult, they need a, you know, maybe have I done an opposition on this issue? we're very free and open giving out our work. So, you know, if you have an attorney that needs that help, just tell them to shoot me an email. And if awesome. I have it on file, I, I'm very free and open with it. We'll give it to them. That's excellent. You know, we had a, a Zoom meeting last night, I told you before the show, and, and and this is the major crux of our problem, getting enough lawyers that are knowledgeable and understand the system and that are willing to put in the time and effort. And, you know, I mean, not, let's face it, not many people want to work pro bono. I mean, I wouldn't, I, I flip houses. I don't want to work pro bono getting paid when yeah. the house is, you know, like that's just something that's. You no, know, we do, we do, we do enough pro bono by accident. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you know, and it, it's sad. I mean, lawyer, look, we all, lawyers get, you know, name called all the time and, and put in, you know, labels on them, but not all lawyers are bad folks. Lawyers do good work. Thank God for lawyers. Thank God we have constitutional lawyers that actually understand what's going on well, can, and, and understand you, can the system. Can you imagine just with, with the lawyers we have now, can you imagine what the system would be like, the abuses oh my that gosh. people would suffer if you didn't have any lawyers at all? I, I don't even want to think about it. I don't even want to yeah. think about that. Be horrible. Yeah. Absolutely horrible. It's it's yeah. That that is a scary thought. Actually, I, actually, I never even thought about it from that angle. That's a great, yeah. great. So when great people point. are bashing lawyers, they should think about that. But for the lawyers, we'd probably all be in chains. Man, that's scary, scary. Yeah. And you know, being out there in California, I mean, you're up against it. But that's a that's a. And good I'll tell you, <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. California is just a. 
cesspool. But, <laughs> oh, I was gonna say shit show. But yeah, I don't know same thing. <laughs> that's where that's it ends why, up in the cesspool. So yeah, that's one of the reasons I actually took the Arizona bar because uh, you know California. I grew up here, man, and it's it's sad the way things have gone. We didn't used to be this way, and uh, it's sad and it's depressing, but it's not the life that you know I would really want to lead here in California, sure. Arizona, Nevada, Texas, Tennessee, I guess is okay. I mean, mm -hmm. there's a, there's some places I would go, but uh, Arizona is the most convenient. So that's why I took the bar there. Well, it's so hard. I mean, obviously it's your native state and you want to, you know, it's a beautiful state and yeah. uh, such a unique place to live. And it's, it's a shame. It is a shame what they've done to it. And, you know, I, I I'm, I don't know. I'm a fairly optimistic person. It's hard to be optimistic in the days and age we're living, but I'm pretty optimistic that things are going to get on the right track again for our country. I, I have four kids, you know, three of them are adults. Uh, one's 10 years old and I just don't want to see them. I, I grew up in a pretty good place. I mean, I had great yeah. childhood, great parents, you know, everything. And I want the same for my kids and uh, I'm going to fight for it. You know, I didn't want to do these, these live streams. Like this was not on my, trust me, this was not on my <laughs> agenda for, <laughs> I just felt like God was calling me to do it. And I kept fighting it, fighting it, fighting it. And then finally I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And then it was, it, it had nothing to do with anything with children. <clears throat> it was uh -huh. mostly, you know, around my faith. And next thing I know, I meet Megan Walsh. I meet, you know, a former Hollywood producer and they're getting me involved in all that. <laughs> Uh, and yeah. so now, you know, that's become a passion and it's, it's when you see it, when you see it for what it is, you just can't sleep at night and think that I can't let another child be taken. I just can't fathom that. Like I, that is the worst possible fear of a parent and it's happening all the time. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you something that you guys haven't really touched on it, but I suspect just by your name, rescue the fosters that you're aware once a kid is taken that that's only the first step in the process of that kid, the destruction of that kid's That's psyche right. and maybe even their life. I can't mm -hmm. tell you how many kids when they get into foster care, they get raped, they get beaten, they get molested, they get yep. killed. Yep. Probably right now, a third of our cases, a third of our cases are sexual abuse or death cases and all of them in foster care. And, yes. and what is the vetting process for foster? That's the other thing I've noticed that the, the vetting process is horrendous. Is there even a vetting process? I wonder. California. That's a good question. California didn't audit of its license holders. Um, I think it was after, after, I don't remember if it was after Fogarty or after Duval, but there was a big, a big political, political hoopla over the verdicts. And so they didn't audit of their foster license holders. And what they discovered was that there were a thousand registered sex offenders who had foster care license. Oh and the media got a hold of this and went nuts. And, and they asked, I don't know, somebody in the CDSS, okay, we now have identified, we have a thousand license holders on the list. What are we doing about it? The answer was, we don't have a budget to do anything <laughs> about it. <laughs> so it's like, what the hell? <laughs> what are we doing? Every turn. Every turn. It, you know, I'm surprised the media actually reported that because the media here, you every now and then you'll hear a case. We had a pretty high profile case here in Michigan recently of a judge um, that was coming out against the corruption. And man, they just railroaded her. And, you know, oh, yeah. And then she ended up suicided. Um, 
So she didn't uh, hang out with the Clintons, did she? Didn't, she didn't. No, she was on the on the wrong side of the aisle apparently. So they they did her off, uh, but not through the Clintons. Yeah. And you know, it's just that's it. Unfortunately, that's the other thing we're up against. Now we are we do have some inroads um, with some some good folks that have helped us out. Uh, we have a lot of high profile people uh, that are helping now. So I'm I'm hopeful that we'll be able to get this into the media. Um, right now, you know, it's all alternative media, but we're hoping that we can at least push some of these cases into the mainstream media and at least get it out there for the for the people that are you know. Let's face it, most of this country is in the middle politically. They vote yeah, one way, they sure. vote another way. Like that's that's the majority of the people. And if we can reach some of those people in the middle and and show them the problem that this is not political, this has nothing to do with your ideology. Yeah. It has to do with children and families. And I think we can all get on board that train. Well, I think and, we have a and, good good in chance. One sense, I, I think if you look at the you know the more liberal the more liberal end of the political spectrum. It, it really is part of the ideology. I, I don't know if you're... I would heard, I would agree with that, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, that phrase, it takes a village to raise oh, a yeah. child. Yeah. That, and they, I read this thing, it just came out in the state of California that's putting it out for their wraparound program. They say, oh, the the old adage, it takes a village to raise a child, you've heard it before. And I was like, well, no, actually, I haven't heard it before until I heard Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. saying it. So I Googled it. And it turns out that it, it is an old adage, just not an old American adage. You know, they're adopting these concepts from other countries who do not adhere to our same ideas about the value of individuals, individual liberty, or, or even the, the measure of, I don't want to say divinity, I'm not a particularly religious person, mm-hmm. but that spark of divinity that that brings us to life in our consciousness as human Mm -hmm. beings those are the values that the united states was founded on absolutely those are not the values that you know eastern europe necessarily or or central africa necessarily were founded on that's not what the that's not what they're based on in fact that's where that saying it takes a village to raise a child Mm -hmm. comes from central africa Um, which is, I, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just culturally different from our foundations. And so that's trying to be superimposed on our system. And from my perspective, it's not appropriate. No. You know, I was expecting you to say it came from Haiti because I know the Clintons had a lot to do with Haiti. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was too easy. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, no, you're right. I mean, look, fundamentally, look, it, it's... I'm a Christian. I'm unabashedly Christian. I, I defend Christianity, but I, I respect everybody's beliefs, everybody's thought processes, their ideologies. As long as you're not hurting another person, I'm okay with you. I have lots of friends that are atheists and agnostic, you know, and it doesn't bother me. They, they live their lives. They're moral, good people. They, they're they not, you know, murdering people and, you know, raping kids and stealing things. It's just, but when it comes down to the end of the day, I mean, I just think families are important. I mean, that's the crux of a nation. If you don't have the family unit, the nuclear family, and that's what they've been trying to destroy for generations now, this is where we end up. We end up in a, in a morally bankrupt and corrupt system. I agree with that. I agree with that. A strong family is essential to a strong country. Mm -hmm. It's, It's just fundamental. Listen, I've got uh, yeah. 
my kids, everybody's in here waiting for me. <laughs> Go ahead. Enjoy the family. Sean, thank you so much, man. I appreciate you. You're always welcome back. I'm sure we're going to have you back on for another round and uh, keep up the good work, my friend. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me, man. Yep. You enjoy the rest of your weekend and enjoy your time with your kids. Yep. Take care. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. All right, guys. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Let me, oops, let me fix the screen here. Uh, why won't it enlarge? Ah, oh, Zoom, why do you do this? Well, whatever. <laughs> there I am in the little pick. Uh, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to go ahead and release the, the uh, gold pills over on uh, Foxhole. Let me go ahead and do that real quick. Hope you enjoyed, Sean. What a great guy. Uh, scratching his release. Get yourself some gold pills. God bless you all. Have a great weekend. Um, I am live tomorrow night, 7.30 p.m. with, uh, I'm sorry, 8, 8 o'clock p.m. with Mike, the Hollywood Reporter. Another episode of True Hollywood Stories. Hopefully you'll join us for that. Uh, that will be episode three. I'm not sure what Mike's got lined up, but should be good. So hopefully we'll see you tomorrow. And uh, I'm going to play the outro and... You guys all have, actually, I'm not going to play the outro because I don't have it queued up. So have a great night. God bless. Take care.